0: We're glad you're here with us again this morning as we continue our look at a series that we've started on Sunday mornings called Goodbye God. And this series was constructed and designed to respond to an article that was written in the last two years summing up the state of Christianity in America. In 2012, a research group called the Pew Research Group did a comprehensive study of Christianity in America. And based upon their findings, they discovered, in their opinion, that Christianity was on the decline. Some went as far to say that Christianity is dying. It's one of my favorite ones. At the beginning of this year, March of 2015, the Barna Research Group wanted to take a look at the accuracy of the statistics found in the Pew Research uh, Report and found what was actually taking place was that those who had once identified themselves as Christians and we would consider them nominal Christians, they would consider themselves nominal Christians, who maybe attended church once or twice a year, were now moving away from that identity of Christian and accepting an identity of none. No religious affiliation whatsoever. And based upon that evidence, people interpreted that as Christianity is on the decline. Well, certainly nominal Christianity is on the decline. But the Barna Report also discovered that one out of four Americans now identify themselves as either an atheist, one who absolutely rejects the idea that God exists at all, or an agnostic, one who does not know. These individuals have now been collectively put in a group which now has been labeled skeptics. Individuals who need more proof... They need to know why the masses believe what they believe, and they need answers to the questions that they are asking to satisfy themselves concerning the legitimacy of what others hold to. And those questions are specifically targeted. The first question is targeted towards the Bible. Is the Bible truly the word of God or has it simply been elevated by sincere believers to this sacred book that it truly was never, ever meant to become? Is it just a book written by man? Is it just simply a collection of fairy tales? How did we get the Bible? How did it come about? Why do we hold it in the regard in which we do? These are just some of the questions that are being asked. Then they are moving to the question of the church. What is the church really supposed to be all about? Because the world equates the church with hypocrisy, and I will tell you, frankly, that the church has given the world a lot of evidence to support that conclusion. That's unfortunate, but it is true. And lastly, what about men like who we had just heard, Richard Dawkins, who state that why would we ever want to go back to such an unrealistic, ancient book who, as he put it, is... Um, derived from uneducated scribes and desert dwellers, as he stated. Why would we do that? Over the next several weeks, we are going to be looking at those questions. And this morning, we begin by looking at the question of the Bible. The title of my message this morning is, Why Believe the Bible? And we're going to be looking at this book that you have in your lap, hopefully this morning with you, the Bible. Now there is no doubt that if we engage these skeptics, and we should look to engage with them, we should look to discuss these things with them, we should look to provide them an answer in which they are seeking. They may or may not agree with that answer, but we should at least have an answer to give them that is logical and will cause them a moment of pause to possibly revisit and reconsider their position. But there is no doubt. In fact, in my experience, in speaking with skeptics, one thing that we all agree upon is that the Bible has been, if not the most, one of the most influential books in all of the world. I often ask them, can you think of a book that has had a greater impact upon the world than the Bible? Throughout history, the Bible has touched culture after culture after culture, and that culture was then required to deal with the claims of the Bible. Not only because of the written claims of the Bible itself, but also based upon the allegiance in which the believers in Jesus Christ gave to the Bible, the prominence that the believer in Christ gave to the Bible. It required cultures to look at the Bible with some type of discernment, meaning they had to do something with it. It wasn't sufficient just to leave it there. They had to acknowledge it, and they had to wrestle through the claims of it. Certainly, in the last 2,000 years, the claim that these cultures wrestle with is the person of Jesus Christ. Did he truly live as he lived? Did he say what he said? Did he die? And most importantly, did he rise on the third day? Cultures need to wrestle with this reality that the Bible portrays. Cultures need to wrestle with the fact that it is considered the word of God. And thirdly, the cultures that it touches needs to deal with the manner in which the believer relates to the Bible as God's final authority. We all agree upon this. You have to do something with it. You can remain indifferent only to discover that you've made a choice already. But you have to do something with it. And if you are truly a skeptic, A skeptic is one who is willing to ask questions and follow the evidence where it leads. Because if you're not willing to do that, you're not truly a skeptic. You're indifferent. If you're not willing to look objectively at the evidence that is put in front of you, then I would not consider you a skeptic. I would consider you indifferent. You don't really care. But a skeptic cares. And we're going to discover in our time together this morning that many of these skeptics care deeply they want to know what this book is all about and we are here to help equip you to give answers to your friends and family and coworkers, sons and daughters, etc., to the questions that they are being faced with and challenged with maybe in college and higher education, maybe in the workplace, maybe in society, etc. And we are hoping that this series will help equip you to do just that. Today, though, as we have discovered, there are some who are voicing strong opposition to the Bible and raising what appears to be serious doubts to its credibility. I use that word very specifically, appears. They make very convincing arguments in their writings and in their books because they are very persuasive many have been required to take a moment of pause themselves even those who have grown up in church they've grown up reading the bible but being exposed to these questions and being exposed to this opposition they've had to take a step back and to reconsider for themselves their understanding of the bible this opposition has become so loud that many have who have grown up in church And reading the Bible, have been taken back by the volume of the opposition and now doubt the accuracy and the authenticity of it. One out of four Americans now identify themselves as either an atheist or an agnostic one who does not believe at all that God exists and one who does not know if God exists or not. So, before we can answer the question, we must know what the questions are. What are these skeptics thinking? we've discovered through the polling data that has been collected and i'd like to read the evidence for you or the the responses for you skeptics dismiss the idea that the bible is holy or supernatural in any way first and foremost secondly two-thirds contend that It is simply a book of well-known stories and advice written by humans and containing the same degree of authority and wisdom as any other self-help book. Now the remaining one-third are divided between those who believe the Bible is a historical document that contains the unique but not God-inspired accounts and events that have happened in the past, and those who do not know what to make of the Bible but have decided it deserves no special treatment or consideration that being said we went on to find out given their indifference towards the bible it is remarkable to discover that six out of ten skeptics own at least one copy of the bible most of them have read it from uh, from it in the past and a handful almost exclusively those who are agnostic still read it at least once a month i find that very interesting the fact is, most skeptics have some firsthand experience with the Bible, and most have had some regular exposure to it during their youth. What has been the objections that you have heard by people concerning the Bible? Maybe you went to college and you had a set of ideas that you established as you went to church as a, as a, a, a young person. And then when you got to college, you found that professors challenged those ideas. Does God really exist? Is the Bible the word of God? Did Jesus really exist? And they seem to have very, very plausible arguments against such things. Until you begin to look at the evidence that we have. And this is where I find that a lot of Christians haven't been equipped and prepared properly. We don't know the evidence that we have. And I will tell you, the evidence that we have for the Bible being historically accurate, being a historical document, has been called none other than an embarrassment of riches by those who have looked at the evidence. Maybe you've heard these objections. Well, the Bible was just written by man. Or, it's full of contradictions and errors. Or as you heard this gentleman say, it is simply just a fairy tale. But is that true? This morning I want to take a look at the Bible, but from a completely different perspective than we ever have before here at this church. I don't want you just to look at what you have in your hand, but we're going to go beyond that. We're going to take a journey past the Bible to discover what is behind the words in which you read, to discover what lies behind it, to understand where it has come from and how we have what we have in our hands. And this morning, we will use to set up our time next week together as we show you how specifically we can identify the Bible as a historic document and how they recorded events at that time in such a unique way to show us that we must contend with them as if they were truly reality. But let's begin with the Bible that you have on your lap. Most of you here probably have an English translation of the Bible. Others might have a Spanish translation of the Bible. I think uh, Chris over there has the picture Bible. <laughs> but you all own a translation of the Bible. An English translation of the Bible. And it's just that. It is an English translation of the Bible. Once we make that clear, we understand that this in front of us is representing that something behind it. Does that make sense? So what is behind the English Bible? Well, the New Testament is mainly uh, compiled of Greek. And the Old Testament is compiled mainly by Hebrew with some Aramaic. So the languages that we are translating into English are Greek in the New Testament, and we are translating from the Old Testament the Hebrew language. Now, how many of you here can speak multiple languages? Anybody? There we go. One of the things you will discover in speaking multiple languages, it's sometimes difficult to say in one language what another language is saying, isn't it? The Greek language is a very comprehensive, very eloquent uh, language. But you may or may not know this, it doesn't have any punctuations. And subjects or verbs are, are denoted by the way the words are spelled and the tenses in which they carry and the Hebrew language is just as complex. So the very first thing we have to do is we have to understand that the, what we have in, on our lap is a translation of other sources. And I'm going to stop right there for a moment. Because I want to answer a question that so many have asked over the years. When an individual goes to purchase a Bible, they are confronted with a reality that I don't think they anticipated to, and expected to occur. If I were to ask you to go buy a Bible and you went to your local Christian bookstore or you went to a bookstore or you went to Amazon online and you typed in Holy Bible and you came back with 453,000 results. Or if you go to your local Christian bookstore and you ask the, the clerk at the counter, Hi, I'd like to purchase a Bible. And they respond with this particular comment that May have take you back a little bit. Okay, which one? Hmm, wasn't prepared for that question. I, I want the Bible. Well, which one? Um, the holy? <laughs> um, maybe black covered? <laughs> so many are confused by the reason that we have so many English translations of the Bible. They don't understand that. And it is confusing. And it does give the appearance that, again, with a plethora of different you know, translations, how do we know which one is accurate? Well, if you look at them individually, you'll discover that the sources in which they are translating are all the same. It's mostly the same Greek text, and it's almost always the same Hebrew text. So the difference isn't in the Greek or the Hebrew, the difference is in the style in which they chose to translate the Bible. There are three. There's a formal style, a formal equivalent, which means a more word-for-word approach to the translation process. But again, anyone who speaks multiple languages knows that a word-for-word translation is almost impossible without introducing a technique called dynamic equivalence. That's the second category, dynamic equivalence. Where a formal would be word for word, a dynamic would be idea for idea. But then we're confronted with a third, and that's the paraphrase version. Summing up the meaning of the words using words that we would use today. And one of the little illustrations that I like to use is if someone were to say in Greek, please settle down, a paraphrase of that would be chill out similar meanings but definitely spoken with a vernacular of today that's what the main difference is between the english bibles is the translation philosophy that the committees have used to bring those english bibles into existence the greek and the hebrew behind it is almost the same in all cases but the manner in which they choose to translate those words into English gives us the differing of the different Bibles. Let me give you some examples. In your Bible, in Matthew 1.18, if you hold to a formal equivalent like the ESV, the NASB, or the New King James, Old King James, your version would read something like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's a formal equivalent. A more dynamic equivalent that you would find in a version like the NIV, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. A more paraphrase would be found in a version such as the New Living Translation. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. In all of those cases, the same Greek text, which is called the Nestle-Aland's 27, is used. But the philosophy of translation is different in each case. One is formal, one is dynamic, and one is more between dynamic and paraphrase, changing the vocabulary slightly in each case. All of those same translations use the same Hebrew text, which is the Masoretic Hebrew text. I'm throwing this out so you know and have a little bit of an understanding Now, we must address an issue if we are to engage skeptics, a reality that they might throw out your way to maybe confuse you or to stumble you. There is no doubt that the publishing companies behind the English translations of the Bibles discovered that it was cheaper to create an English translation of the Bible than to pay copyrights to another publishing company for the use of that text. Does that make sense? It was cheaper for Zondervans to create the NIV than to use a copyrighted text from another publishing company. The only text right now, I think, that is used in public domain is the King James Version. And the same is true with Crossway, with the ESV. The same is true with the New Living Translation, with the Tyndale House Publishers. But that being said, in their quest to save money, these are all what are called committee produced translations, where scholars are brought together to look at the Greek and Hebrew and bring it into English. Does that make sense? So we address that issue. At this point now, we are going to take a little diversion on our road back into time, and we are going to look at the New Testament and our second step of our journey. What are the sources of the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament? And since most skeptics want to debate the new testament that is the route that we are going to go because the new testament did not have what i call a national base to it let me explain what i mean by that when the old testament was written it was god's word written by the hebrew people the jewish people And that word was kept nationally. The nation cherished that word. And they trained scribes, and scribes were very proficient in the manner in which the words of God were preserved. But when it came to the New Testament, the New Testament didn't have that national backing. It went into all the known world. And letters were being written by the apostles and then carried to churches all over the known world. And each time that letter would arrive in those churches of the known world, copies were made. Many, many copies were made. So since the New Testament is often scrutinized more closely than the Old Testament, it is the New Testament that we are going to look at this morning. In the New Testament, we have a compilation of all the manuscripts that we have found in what is called the Nestle Allens 28th Revision. It is that Greek New Testament that the majority of new English Bibles are based upon. Okay, It is something that is looked at around the world by many different Christian uh, communities. It is one that looks at this is the New Testament that we are going to look at. There is another one called the Texas Receptus, which is less popular, but it is the Greek text behind the King James and the New King James Bible. There's a lot of debate on which is better uh, amongst Christian scholars and textual critics. That being said, looking at the Nestle Allens, which is behind most of the English translations and behind most of the Bibles around the world, we are going to be looking at what lies behind this and what lies behind this Greek New Testament is such an ample supply of manuscripts that again, as I stated earlier, it has been called an embarrassment of riches. For example, when we talk about manuscripts, we are talking about the original documents. Now we will concede the fact that we do not have the original documents that Peter, Paul, Mark, Luke, Jude, James wrote, etc. We concede that fact. Does that, however, then, create a problem in getting back to what the original says? Those who want to uh, criticize the Bible say yes. Those who believe the Bible say no. but I will say to you that those who criticize the Bible take their objections to the Bible differently than they would object to other classic historical works. What do I mean by that? Because we have other classical historical works that have been derived in the same manner, meaning we have copies of copies, we accept these to be authentic, but when it comes to the Bible they won't give that same authenticity. That's a difficulty that they have to get past. They're not being honest then. If you're going to apply the same principle, play, it, play fair across the entire board. But what do we have as evidence for this Greek New Testament that we base our English translations upon? Listen to this. Of Greek manuscripts alone, to this date, there are 5,752 and I'm going to give you some perspective in just a moment on how significant that actually is. Concerning Latin manuscripts, going back to the 4th, 5th, 6th century, we have over 10,000. We have over 15,000 from other languages, such as Coptic and Syriac, etc., leading us to a total of 30,000 manuscripts that we can look at to try to get back to the original using the principles of textual criticism. Now, if that wasn't enough, let me continue. We have over one million quotes from the early church fathers, which went from 100 AD. Now, 100 AD, we are 70 years after the crucifixion of Christ. From 100 AD to 350 AD, we have over 1 million quotes from the Bible. From the canonized letters of the Bible. If we were to compare that to other Roman Greco work, the most popular of all Roman Greco work, I think, would have to be Homer's work. We have 5,752 Greek manuscripts alone. For Homer, we have 643. Again, we have, for the skeptic, an embarrassment of riches that they even concede is overwhelming, and classical textual critics for other works would love to have that much evidence. So what is textual criticism are they just sitting criticizing the text textual criticism is this they put manuscripts in front of them they consider their dates their origins they consider the the quality and so forth and then they use certain principles that are standard principles to try to get back to the original And people who have doubted this process have been uh, surprised to discover how accurate it can actually become. It's been done on college campuses for centuries. Textual criticism. In fact, just recently, a student body took on textual criticism and looked at the Gettysburg Address. And they had 50 students take the Gettysburg Address, copy it, taking away the original, and from the copies, trying to ascertain what the original originally said. And they were able to do it each and every time, coming down to about three words. Because in the scope of the 50 students, they discovered you have the A students, the B students, the C students, and then my friends. (laughs) Okay? And when they took all of them together, they discovered that they could easily ascertain what the original said because not all 50 students would be as careful or as accurate or make the same mistake in the same place over and over and over again. On Christian campuses, this is often done in the classroom with a uh, work called The Gospel According to Snoopy. And students then go back to the original and they have a lot of fun doing it. The skeptics and those who want to attack the authenticity of the evidence in which we have want us to believe that this evidence is handled in the same way such as the telephone game would be handled. That through the course of history, the word of God was consolidated to simply oral tradition. And like the telephone game, if you've ever played that game, We used to call it Elephant Charades, and don't even ask me how we got that title for it. But you would whisper something into someone's ear, and then they would whisper it to another person, and so on, and go down the line. And by the time, the message would be all garbled, and everybody would have a good laugh, and you would say, oh, isn't that hysterical, etc. We used to call it um, Elephant Charades because when we did it, we not only said a, a, a phrase or a sentence or a story, but we actually depicted an elephant being washed and by the end of it, you could not tell. It seemed like it was somebody having a seizure. It was so bad at the end. And critics want us to believe that that is the same evidence that we're working with, going back to the original that were, were written. And that's not the case. First of all, we are not working with just verbal, oral tradition. We are working with copies. Written Copies, Copy after copy after copy. But amongst the copies, there are what are called textual variants. And these textual variants are what some, like Bart Erdman in his book, um, Misquoting Jesus, would say, these textual variants are so, new, are, are so numerous that there is no way that we can get to the original meaning of the text because he will state that there are over 400,000 textual variants amongst all the works in which we have. And you know what? He's right. And you also know that there's only 138,000 words in the New Testament, so that's three variants for every single word in the New Testament. Now that 400,000 would seem to be a lot, and it is, but... Because of the amount of evidence that we have, the potential for textual variance that has been established by both conservative and liberal scholars could be in the millions. And we only have 400,000 to work with. Those 400,000, though it seems to be a lot, is somewhat misleading. 75% 75% of the 400,000 are what's called nonsensical errors. They're silly errors where words are misspelled or words are, um, uh, you know, the word order has changed a little bit but are is easily correctable as you read through it. That's 75% of the entire pie of the 400,000. Out of the, the next portion that is the largest is word order changes. There are 20,000 word order changes. Now that seems to be a big deal to some but they don't understand Greek. If you are fluent in Greek, you will understand that simply writing Jesus loves John in Greek can be written 18 different ways and mean the exact same thing. So again, the, the, uh, the potential for variants are enormous, and yet we are confined to such a few. 4% then, so we have 75, 20, the next 4% are what's called meaningful but not viable. These are, these are changes in the text, but we know that they can't go back to the original because they're only found in later manuscripts. It is less than 1% that are meaningful and viable, and out of that 1%, not one Christian doctrine is affected by that variant. Some of them are simply this, Jesus said, or the Lord says. Either way, we know who said it, right? Right? It's not that one says Peter said or Jesus said, it's simply Jesus said or the Lord said. But that would be a meaningful, viable textual variant. So the question that we have to ask, and well, how far back do our copies go? And up until just recently, we had a small fragment called P52 that went back to 125 AD, and it was literally seven verses of the Gospel of John but a discovery has been made. Dr. Wallace has announced a year ago that Dr. Craig Evans, one of the leading Christian archaeologists in the world, in Egypt, in a recent dig, found an Egyptian mask. And you say, well, that's neat, but Egyptian masks have been found all over Egypt. Well, what you might not know is that not all Egyptian masks are made out of gold. In fact, only the pharaohs received a mask that was made out of gold. Nobody else could afford that. So do you know what the masks were made of? Papyri. And as a result, in this mask, they found that what was used to make it was a huge fragment of the Gospel of Mark. Dating... 80 A.D. It is now being publicized, and it will be at the end of this year out in the open and in the public. It's coming out now. It's going through the paces to uh, catalog it and to publicize it. But in the wake of this discovery, Dr. Wallace said this. Dr. Daniel B. Wallace is one of the leading textual critics in all of the world. It is interesting, he's a... Interesting fellow to say the least. He's incredibly intelligent. And what you might not know is that his Christianity began in Calvary Chapels in California back in the 60s and 70s. But because he wanted to become a, a better student of the word and he really truly wanted to be able to debate and to work with Jehovah's Witnesses, he decided to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. And well, he not only went there, but he went on to get his doctorates through Princeton. He is now one of the leading experts on Greek manuscripts in the entire world. And he is now photographing all of the manuscripts that he can get his hands on to make them available for people like you and I to see on the web. Isn't that awesome? In fact, just two years ago, I had a question about a textual issue, and I decided to email him. That's pretty bold. So I decided to email it. Within three days, his assistant got back to me on his behalf to answer my question. I have a lot of respect for this man. But this is what he said in light of this latest discovery. These fragments now increase our holdings as follows. We have as many as 18 New Testament manuscripts from the 2nd century and one from the 1st century Altogether, more than 43% of all the New Testament verses are found in these manuscripts. But the most interesting thing is this first century fragment, which we are now going to be looking at in the next year. Again, we have a plethora of evidence. Now at this point, we must stop. Because there's something we must notice on our journey back into time. As we now come into the 2nd and 3rd centuries, we must deal with something that has arisen in 1945 as an archaeology discovery was made in a region of Egypt called the Nagamati. Nagamati, in 1945, a cave was discovered and inside that cave there were a plethora of codex, which are books. And in those were these Newly found, apparently, gospels that somehow then allowed critics to say they were excluded at the beginning, but now we have them because they were hidden, secret, mysterious, etc. But now we have them. And these gospels really give us a different picture of Jesus. And now that they are surfaced, we have to take them into consideration because, again, they were hidden, etc. Well, we'll talk about them being hidden in just a moment. But these include versions of the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Philip, and the Gospel of Judas. None of them were written by the people who they are supposed to be of and from. In in 1896, the Gospel of Mary was discovered. And if these sound familiar to you, it's probably because you've been exposed in some way either seeing or reading Dan Brown's famous novel, The Da Vinci Code. What about these Gospels? Well, first of all, know that they're not mysterious. The Church Fathers dealt with them when they were being written in the 2nd and 3rd century. In fact, Origen himself knew of many of these works and renounced them because they weren't authentic. And we're going to look at that next week. So just put that in your mind for next week. We're going to look at what it meant by being authentic. But these aren't new. And the, these have serious doubts and questions to them. But one of the interesting things is that Dan Brown and others marketed these Gospels in declaring that they support the fact that Jesus was human but never divine. You might have heard that. You might have heard that these Gospels support the fact that Jesus was human but he was never divine and he didn't come to become divine until the council with Constantine created that identity of him that couldn't be farther from the truth i've read these these gospels they are not arguing for the humanity of god or jesus i should say they are arguing against the humanity of god these gospels fully embrace the fact that he was god but he was only spirit no physical flesh whatsoever that's what they're arguing completely the opposite and this has been readily documented, and you can discover this for yourself. But we're going to look at these extra Gospels later. Gospels simply meant good news. And so just because it was labeled with the term Gospel didn't necessarily meant that it was to be equaled with the four Gospels. And we're going to talk about that more next week. But as we are moving through the 2nd and 3rd century, we now come to the reality that we are in the very 1st century. And as we discover, as we move through the 1st century and we come to 100 A.D., John is still living, the Apostle John, and writes the book of Revelation in 94 A.D., We come to the 60s, and Peter and Paul have died, and all of their epistles have already been written in the 50s and 60s. James and Galatians of this book has been written in the 40s. Now these have all been substantiated, and the evidence is clear to when these were written. If we are already in the 40s, do you realize that we are only 10 to 12 years away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? In fact, if this is true, and this is what I pose to my skeptic friends, if this is true, then we today are closer to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ than we are to 9-11. And now we must deal with that reality. Well, who wrote the books of the Bible? Well, it's amazing to find out that the New Testament was just written by nine people. Matthew, who was an apostle. Mark, who was an associate of an apostle. John Mark's mentioned in the book of Acts and also, of course, in his gospel. The gospel that he wrote was probably um, Peter's recollection of the accounts of Christ. Luke was a physician, an associate of the apostles. He wrote Luke and Acts. John wrote his gospel and also the epistles in Revelation. Paul wrote all of his epistles. James wrote his, Jude his, Peter his. Hebrews, as Origen says, only God knows who wrote Hebrews. But nine people. All before 100 AD, when the last of the apostles died, this was complete. And within the next century, as we'll discover next week, these books were already being looked at as authoritative by the early church. It wasn't Constantine who brought a canonization of the scriptures together. We are going to define that even Irenaeus in 160 AD already mentions the four gospels. Let me talk about some misconception. The Bible was not written by one person, or one council, or one group, or one religious organization. It is 66 books written by 44 different authors. And to totally remove the idea of coercion, it was written from 1500 B.C. with the book of Job to 94 A.D. in the book of Revelation. It begins with the beginning of the world and the end of the world. We are now, in our travels, setting a very summarized setting to allow us to look at and to Critique these first 10 to 12 years. Because higher critics will point to those 10 to 12 years and say, in these 10 to 12 years, whoever Jesus really was had changed and then he became who he is in the books that are written about him. That's what they're saying essentially. Let me say that again. That whoever Jesus truly was changed in the 10 to 12 years before the written documents, books were written. And then they were, he was encapsulated in these fictitious books that we now have as our Bible. But is that really true? Did the identity of Jesus Christ change in that 10 to 12 years knowing that the apostles were still living? That 500 people who saw his resurrection were still living at this time? Some had fallen asleep, as Paul said, but many were still living. Is it true that the identity of Jesus Christ changed in those 10 to 12 years? That is what we are going to be looking at next time together as we look further into this. And next week, I hope you'll stay tuned with me. We covered a lot of information this morning. I say this, that you may look at it, that you may research it yourself, that you may pose it to your skeptic friends in a cordial way loving conversation, to allow them to chew on it, asking them to be honest with the evidence that we have. Because what we are establishing here is that the Bible is a historical document rooted in history. And if that's the case, and as we establish next week that the reporting that we find in the Bible is very unique, and that individuals... Who have looked at this from a skeptic's eye had to concede that it was done in such a manner that we must deal with the possible reality of these events. One of those skeptics was Lee Strobels. Many of you may have know of him. He was a reporter here here at the Chicago Tribune. He was a skeptic until his wife became a believer in Jesus Christ. He claimed to be an atheist. He looked at the evidence himself, and one of the things he looked at was the evidence that we are looking at this morning. And he came to a place where he could not deny that the evidence was more overwhelming than he ever anticipated. As we meet individuals who are skeptical, let us never look at them as obstacles, simply someone we have to get over, simply someone that we have to prove wrong and us right. I want you to look at these individuals as opportunities and know that the Lord cares for them as much as he cares for you and if it wouldn't have been for someone taking a risk and showing me the evidence I wouldn't be where I am today and all I can do is logically place it before them allow them to look at it allow them to reason through it And being honest with themselves, they would have to come to a conclusion that either, yes, we have significant evidence to show that what we have in our English Bibles today is reflectant of what actually occurred 2,000 years ago there in Israel, in Jerusalem. And if that's the case, then we have to start looking at the claims that the Bible is making. And the person that the Bible is exalting, Jesus Christ, is he really who he said he was if he existed which fascinatingly enough most people will agree with there's only a few that don't believe that jesus even existed even some of the most liberal scholars believe that jesus existed but if he existed and he made these claims and they have been accurately historically recorded for us to have with us today see the bible forces us to come to a conclusion The Bible doesn't allow us to to remain neutral. It asks us to consider and to make a decision. I leave you with these words. Found in John's Gospel, chapter 3, if you'd like to read there with me, verse 33 to 36. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. That is Jesus. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The Word of God. From the mouth of Christ. Christ through the mouths of the apostles, recorded for us in the Word of God. We've looked at the evidence behind the English translation. We have journeyed back very quickly, very quickly, I understand that, to 40 A.D., 10 to 12 years after the crucifixion of Christ. Next week we'll look at that 10 to 12 years to see if things changed so much that the identity of Christ is so skewed that we truly don't know who he is? Or are we going to discover that he is exactly who he said he is?